and welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Right, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. I've got Damon Mangella, bass player and Ocean Colour scene, along with that Paul Weller's band, um, and more recently Richard Ashcroft, as well as that you've worked with countless other musicians throughout the years, and we're going to kind of touch on all of that. But before we get into music, just let us know what it was like for a young Damon Mangella growing up. Oh, it was fucking awesome. I mean, Jesus Christ, looking back at it now with kids of my own with the whole sort of pressures of internet and all that sort of bullshit. I mean, my childhood was playing football with my mates, brilliant parents, trying not to beat my sister up, um, though I failed a couple of times. Um, yeah, it was just awesome. Loved it. Going to, going to the match with me, my dad and my... Um, my best mate and my uncle um, doing as little at school as possible to not get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And then you run slap bang into music and all girls and all that sort of thing. And it's like, my God, life's fucking great. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you get a bit older and then you go, yeah, it fucking is. So yeah, there's a lot of swearing there. So I put my apologies for that. But yeah, oh, you, no, I swear that way. The young me, the young, yeah, the young me was very happy. Yeah, yeah totally. Loved it. Yeah, literally, literally football and music. Mm-hmm. That was it. Born, uh, born just outside Wigan, that's right. I was born in a place called Billinge, which is shithole, but that's where, weirdly, Ashcroft was born and also Leon Osman, uh, under, much underrated Everton midfielder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just outside Wigan, um, then brought up in Liverpool, then moved out to the posh bit, sort of... Uh, just outside Southport, when my dad changed jobs. Until I was about 14, then unfortunately we had to move to Birmingham, uh, which is then when I, I went on to meet some people that I formed a band with, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Before we touch on that, obviously, the name Manchella, obviously, mm-hmm. it's, if you look it up, it's obviously Italian heritage. Mm-hmm. So was there a lot of Italian influence in your life? Uh, from my granddad, yeah, but he died when I was little. But mm-hmm. um, interestingly, my name, if you pronounce it in, it- in Italian, is Minkella. But there's a whole bunch of people I'm related to, which are the Minkellas, the Minkelle, the Minkello, and the Minkelli. Right. Uh, there's a whole exodus of Italian families around about, we just say World War One. that's easy to sort of picture it. Um, and this whole groups of families, a lot of them with the name Minkella or Mingella, and another set of families called the uh, Riazzo, or as my mum pronounces them, the Riazis, because she's still a scouser. Right. All, all left Italy, and they all went to ports. So some went to Liverpool, some went to the Isle of Wight, some went to Newcastle. They all made ice cream. So obviously, cliche. So there's like ice, ice cream parlours in Liverpool, Newcastle, and the Isle of Wight, which are all either called Minkella, Minkelli, Minkella, or Mingella. Um, and that's where it that's all where our families came from. Um, so yeah, I mean a big Italian influence on me when I was tiny. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, obviously that we've got a lot up here as well, up in Scotland, mm-hmm. obviously. Um you worked with Paolo Natini at one point yeah. as well. Um obviously we has Italian heritage as well. Did you did you ever speak about that with him? Oh yeah, totally. 
I spoke to him in Italian. He didn't have a clue what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people can't understand him speaking Scottish. So, <laughs> but you know what? To talk about Paolo, he's one of the nicest people I have ever met in music. One yeah. absolute dude. It it does really well to kind of keep his own identity as well, didn't he? Doesn't he? Doesn't do interviews as such. He's kind of he keeps very quiet. He's one of my dream guests. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's. He, I've got a lot of time for him, and what an amazing voice as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I, I mean, touching, start starting off with the band. Then obviously, what, what was your early influences in music? What sort of music were you listening to when you were younger? Oh my god! I mean, for me, music was just stuff you heard on the radio with sort of boring stuff that my sister was into. And but I remember it vividly. I was either 12 or 13, having my cornflakes, just about to leave for school, to walk to school. And the song came on Radio One, which is always on in the kitchen. And it was The Cutter by Echo and the Bunny Men. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the bleep is this? It was like a whole world of mystery and magic. And then I remember just thinking about it all day at school. I couldn't even remember the name of the band that much, but I knew something about cutting up something, so there's maybe scissors involved. And I got home, told my sister, and she was like, oh, look in Smash Hits, and she opened Smash Hits. About four pages in, there's a picture of Echo and the Running Man with the lyrics to the cutter, and I was like, they look cool as well, they don't look like a normal band, what is this? <laughs> um, and weirdly, a, a guy who's a, has become a friend of mine took that picture, but that's all of the story that was in the magazine. Um, and that was it for me. And then I saved up my pocket money, Went and bought um, Echo and the Bunny Man album from Quick Save for one pound ninety nine, and for younger viewers, uh, for younger listeners, Quick Save used to be a supermarket, um, and you could buy albums in the supermarket for one pound ninety nine. So I bought that, and that was it. It's like I want to do that, and then they were playing in Birmingham a couple of years later when we moved there, and my godparents' eldest son who had a car, he was seventeen, so I'd have been bored. 1915 took me to go and see Echo and the Bunny Men at this on the Ocean Rain tour, and they right. just my mind. And it wasn't the other three who were all incredible. I just looked at the bass player and I was like, "That is the coolest thing I've ever seen, apart from a footballer." I want to do that. Yeah. So that's so. Then I decided I'm going to be a bass player. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> and um, what what about the household? Then was um was your mum and dad musical? Was a music Run about the house. Uh, well, my sister used to play really shit stuff by the Style Council, which is quite weird because obviously they were playing loads of Style Council songs. But I hated them. What's this shit pop music? Because I started to get really passionate about the Burning Man. And because we're up in the Burning Man, I started listening to the Velvet Underground and all this noisy shit. Um, but my mum and dad weren't musical. But weirdly, my mum went to school with George Harrison. Wow. Um, in Liverpool, and my dad was asked to be their tour manager when they did their second tour of Germany because they bought a van, mm-hmm. not had a driver's license. So through my mum, the Beatles asked my dad to be their driver slash tour manager. Right. He asked my granddad, his dad, can I can I go on Germany with this? Like they weren't even called the Beatles then; they were called the Silver Beatles. Uh-huh. But anyway, Dad was doing an accountancy qualification. So my granddad, with a whole bunch of Italian swear words, said no. So they <laughs> found another guy called Neil Aspinall, 
who did it. And until he died about 15 years ago, he was still Paul McCartney's manager. Right. So there's a lot of musical connections that weren't music, as in music technique or ability related, but there was a hell of a music connection that I kind of knew nothing about until I started, you know, until my dad took it serious what I was doing in music. Then he told me the story. Right. That, that's that's amazing. I know. So, what was the conversation then with your dad when I take it you went to your dad and says, I want a bass guitar? Oh yeah, yeah. Well he got me one. He got me one. He got me uh he got me a, an amp and a bass for 20 quid. I mean an absolute plank, a disgraceful bass, but I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I got an amp with it as well. Uh, and it was an amp you could plug four things into. So when I formed my first band, when I moved from Merseyside to the Midlands, we used to all four of us used to just sit in my bedroom. We didn't have a drummer, so we had a drum machine, two guitars and a bass, and we'd stick everything through through the amp. It must have sounded appalling. But to us, it was just like the most incredible thing ever, particularly as I was into really sort of like arsy and noisy music. Um, yeah. yeah, it felt great. So, yeah, and I presume my dad just thought, oh, well, he'll get bored with it after a while. How wrong he was. <laughs> <laughs> Ocean Colour scene came about through, um, you were in another band, weren't you? And, um, you, that's where he met Steve, obviously. Steve was in a, a different band again. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, bef- before we go into kind of forming the band, what was the, the music scene like in, like, the Birmingham Midlands area? Was there, was there room for lots of bands? Yeah, it was, again, it was like a different thing. I mean, I talked to, I mean, I do a lot, a lot of music production now and sort of music scenes, even though everyone can access each other's music really quickly now, they're a lot more disparate and fractured. Whereas back then, you had lots of strong local scenes, like really strong. So there'd always be the similar sort of bands we'd be doing gigs with in and around the, all of those sort of Midlands region. You know, it was exotic if you went and played like, in the East Midlands, like you are like on a world tour then. So it tends to be somewhere within 20 miles of Birmingham, you'd be doing a gig from like a, a school to the back room of a pub, whatever. But it would generally be the similar sort of bands you get grouped together with. Um, so you tended to build up connections really quickly. And because of that, if you were any good, the local music journalists would start to come and watch you. And then with their sort of say-so or recommendation, you get played on local radio. And before you know it, the music industry would start to come and have a look. Right. So it's kind of like what it is now, but on a much more reduced scale. Now it's like you need a certain amount of numbers on, on you know, your Spotify or your social media channels, and then people will watch you online and then make a decision. Back then it was like word of mouth, this lot are pulling in a good crowd. They're really good. They're like the best in, in um, their sort of scene of different bands. So, you know, A&R reps to come and see her. So, but as a scene, it was great. And the band that Steve was in, I fucking hated. They were like a really <laughs> shit jam ripoff. Whereas the band I was in with Simon, we were like full on Velvet and the Grand Stooges thing. Right. And I remember Simon saying, we need to get rid of the guitars we've got. I want to get Steve in. And I was like, I fucking hate him. Fucking hate his music. Until we bumped into him at Stone Roses concert. Mm-hmm. October 1989, and then I thought, well, the fact you're here and you think the Stone Roses are good, maybe you aren't a complete dickhead. 
Um, and then before I know it, Simon's arranged for Steve to come over for a, to meet me at my house. And Steve knew it was a massive Jimi Hendrix fan as well. And he'd learned Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix and just played it at full volume. And I was like, I was wrong. You're cool. So that's how he ended up joining the band. And then we had to change the name and picked a band, a really stupid name, because we were all stoned in a library. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, though, that the, the band name fits, in it? Because it's it, obviously you can go as Ocean Colour scene, it's short to OCS. Everybody's well aware of it. It's, it's kind of synonymous with a time as well, really. Yeah. Um, obviously, I, I mean, like the debut, the, the first album, yeah. album, I can mind my big sister having it, and she had she had all the albums, so the, the first album I listened to was the first album, and then listening to Modely Shows, completely different. Yeah. So what was the, the script with the first album? Oh, it was horrible. I mean, we were all so young, and, you know, I said, talking about the Birmingham scene, People started to take notice, and then this guy um, who was the Fine Young Cannibals manager had set up a music publishing company, and he signed us to his music publishing company, and then he set up a record label just for us, um, and we were making this sort of substandard sort of Stone Roses with a little bit of, I don't know, Beatlesy thing thrown in. I don't know. We were just trying to find our feet. But all of a sudden, we got signed to an independent record label. But because we're making a noise in Birmingham, this fella who'd set up the record label signs his record label to a, a, a major label in London because they wanted to sign us, but we didn't know. So he's basically signed his record label, which has just got us on it. So before we know, we've gone in for a meeting at his office. We are now signed to a major record label in London. Right. And we were like, we're not ready. We literally haven't got enough songs we still don't know what we really sound like, even though we know we are probably good eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then before, so before you know, you're signed on this massive fucking record deal and you're going into these ridiculous studios because we'd only ever been in demo studios in the Midlands. And you're working with these fucking, we're working with a guy who was the engineer for the Screamer Delica. And we've got Jimmy Miller, who was the Rolling Stones producer for the, Ro- the classic Rolling Stones albums from the late 60s, early 70s. And we're like, what? What on earth is going on? Um, and we had no say in the contract, so we had no artistic control. Yes. That's why the album sounds like a, a, a mismatch of stuff, because then those producers got sacked, and then the label brought in another producer, and then they brought in a third producer. He was an awesome guy called Tim Palmer, um, who, who did the best he could to make it sound okay. And by this point, by the third time we're making the album, we were just like, this is fucking bollocks. You know, we've started to grow up as musicians and go, we don't want to sound like this, but it was like kind of tough shit. So, yeah, the first album, even though it's got a few little moments, it just sounds confused and weird. Yeah, I mean, that, it must be 15, 20 years for our last lesson. It's not something that yeah, yeah. I would imagine many people haven't bought. <laughs> no. yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like you said, uh, the, the manager... Did he know what he was doing? Was he signing you as basically to flip his over and just make a yeah. fast buck? Yeah, yeah. He signs the the, the Polydor, the, the record label, sorry, Fontana was part of Phonogram. They bought that record label for an absolute fortune. We only yeah. found out years and years later. But we got a 
the four of us got four grand each advance. I mean, imagine we're on the dole at the time, £4,000. Mm-hmm. What is this? And then you start getting into these studios and find out how much they cost. And you're like, so much wrong here. How can Wave give me given nothing? And anyway, it doesn't. I mean, to cut a long story short there, we then got a proper manager, which was the guitarist dad in. He sorted it all out. And we basically engineered it so we could leave the label because we weren't going anywhere. Um, we engineered it so they could drop us. We w- walked away from 350 grand's worth of debt. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the music industry was like, they'll never make it now. They've been dropped by a major label. And we were like, we are now free. Let's make the record that we know we can make. So what, what is the, what, when you leave like a record label like that, what, what's the, the situation? Is there a certain length of time where you're not allowed to make music? Or, so we were banned from gigging for 18 months. Right. Whilst lawyers on both sides were kicking the shit around. So we were like, okay, cool. We rented a ro- horrible room uh, in a suburb of Birmingham, which had, which was possibly a studio at some point. It was masquerading as a studio for, for rent. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a studio on any level. But we had a year and a half where we couldn't gig, so we started writing songs. We just which played every, we started playing every day, not on anything we'd already written, but it was always a new idea. Let's just play it and play it and play it and record it. Um, and some of those songs eventually transmutated into songs that made it onto Moses' shows. Some didn't, but that's where we really learned how to be a band. We were like, no one's going to stop us. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of funny, actually. I mean, my last episode, I was talking to Andrew Cushion, mm-hmm. the singer-songwriter for Newcastle, and obviously he said he's 23-year-old. He's only really been gone um, six, seven years, but obviously two or eight years we've had the pandemic and it's kind yeah, of yeah. similar then it's it's kind of like a pandemic then for you is where you yeah. haven't able to do anything and you're able to just sit and hone your craft yeah yeah totally and i mean that was kind of it really and then we started getting a bit better and making these demos and steve started working with paul weller and then so did i and then we'd start to go, some of these songs are fucking great, but we we have we, we can't record them in this studio. So there's a guy called Andy McDonald who um set up a record label called Go Discs, who'd signed Weller, signed the Lars, signed Paul his head. He really he'd heard our demos and really wanted to sign us, but he had literally just signed Travis. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I haven't got enough room on my label because it's only a small label. Even though Go Discs were like went distributed by majors. He said, if I hadn't tried and just signed Travis, I'd sign you right now. I can't sign you, but I fucking love you. Here's 10 grand. What? Here's 10 grand. Here's a a desk. Here's four microphones. And here's a quarter inch um, reel to reel tape machine. Go and make this album. So now we had some, I mean, looking back, the equipment was terrible, but now we had some money to rent a proper studio for 12 months and enough sort of enough equipment to get by. Um, and that's when we set up Moses Shoals Studios. We found out that the studio that Dexy's Midnight Runners did their first two albums in, which I which had become a shithole, was available to rent. So acoustically, it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned how to engineer properly, and then we started writing more songs, picked the best of the ones we'd written over the previous 18 months, recorded 72 songs, and that turned into Moses Shoals. And we didn't have a record deal. That, that's mental, man. Um, so obviously, this guy that 
that signed Jews and um, eh, that, that couldn't sign Jews, but he had Paul Weller yeah. and all that. Is that is that how all the Paul Weller stuff came out? Like you and Steve going and playing with Paul Weller? Is it through that connection? Um, well, we'd supported Weller while we were making the first album because he he liked our previous singles before we signed to the major label like Sway and Yesterday Today. So we supported him and then he got on really well with Steve and blah, blah, blah. And he's a nice fella. Uh, so when he was looking for a guitarist, mm-hmm. he got Steve in and then Steve starts playing him some of our demos. And he said, oh, you should play them to a guy called Andy McDonald. I've just signed to his record label. So it kind of went through that route. Yeah. Right. I'm a lot to Andy for te- just going, I'd love to sign you. Yeah, I can't. Here's some recording equipment and here's 10,000 pounds, which back in 94, I suppose, 95 maybe. It was like you know, a substantial amount of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your relationship at the start was kind of synonymous with obviously Paul Weller in Oasis. Uh, so who, who, who did you meet, or who did you gag with first in Oasis or Weller? Um, Weller first, but only three shows, and then Liam, not sorry, Nolan heard our demos, and we got offered the entire tour for the live for the live forever single tour. Right. Uh, so that yeah, was that's, just that's really good to I mean we're nothing it only in the first album it, to, to get a, a support like that it's amazing yeah no it was great and uh, we just got on with them so well from the first gig mm-hmm. I mean and then we must have done even when we broke through and we were almost as big as them we'd still support them if they asked so we must have done nigh on 200 gigs with Oasis across the world yeah you know? I mean, it gets to that point where the kind of like the, the bands kind of merge into one. I'm, again, I was talking about this in a previous podcast with the Libertines and um, Welsh band Trampoline, mm-hmm. um, and they, they base they're the same. They basically merge into one big band, and it's all one yeah. big family. And that that's what you all look like back, in the um, for want of a better word, Britpop days. Uh-huh. Uh, Obviously, touching on Britpop before, like the Mosley Schultz album when it came out and like, the video for the day we caught the train. Something that I remember vividly for that is the bucket hats, which yeah. I, I went out immediately and got a bucket hat. I think there, there may be a space of about 15 years where I've never seen them to wear them, but they've made a resurgence the last few years. If you turn on the telly and watch Glastonbury, they know it's just to see them. But I kind of hold you's personally responsible for the bucket hats. Did did you think at the time that it was going to catch on? I mean, I think I think that's fair. We probably did. Um and the thing is like people go, oh you just got it because you, you know, you're fans of the Stone Roses and Rennie used to wear a bucket hat once and what. Wasn't that at all. We went on a really, really long tour of America at the back end of our record deal, the first one. Um and I was really into hip hop. And um, I took all of the band to a, a quite famous hat shop just outside New York called Lids. Mm-hmm. This was 92. And I bought everyone a bucket hat because I thought these are fucking cool. And plus, the fact, the other three were wearing fucking awful sort of stupid hats. I'm like, I've had enough of this. Um, so I've still got that that bucket hat from, 90, from 92, actually. I walk the dog in it occasionally. It's obviously disgusting. Um, <laughs> but because of that, we kind of used to wear them anyway. Um, and then when we like we were going on our first proper tour, you know, when Ribbooks came out and all that, it was like, oh shit, we need merchandise. We gave the job of designing all the merchandise to our drum roadie, 
Right? He was a massive stoner. And he'd started wearing bucket hats and he'd drawn this little logo, which was the three letters OCS, but turned into a man with a spliff in his mouth. So he was like, that'll look great on a hat, that'll look great on a T-shirt. And that was it. Yeah. So people started buying, started wearing this, these bucket hats and T-shirts with the, this fella on it. But the hats in, indeed took over more than anything else. Yeah. I can so, mind going to a tea in the park and I got, I got um, an ocean colour scene hat at tea in the park and I think I got it the first day and I spent the full weekend like making sure nobody grabbed it off my head. Yeah. And then on the bus home, I had a wee bit of hash, it had a wee zip, zip pocket <laughs> yeah, that's, inside that's it. That's why it was there. And I had a bit of, a bit of weed in the, the pocket and I left my heart in the bus, I was gutted. Man, that's going to break your heart. Yeah, but I had them really... Crack. It had a wee padded top as well, they were, they were top quality. Do you know, I had a really funny story about those bucket hats. Um, and I didn't hear this, but I was told it, and I, by really, uh, someone I trust. And Chris Martin was being interviewed about five years ago on Radio 1. Coldplay had something coming out. And they do that thing on Radio 1 where they ask you sort of loads of daft questions. And they ask Chris Martin, you know, you're super famous, you do autographs all the time. Have you ever asked anyone for an autograph? What was it and why? And he had he got a signed bucket hat from us when he was 17. Right. Uh, a gig somewhere down south and he said that is my most treasured possession so he's got one of those bucket hats signed by all of us <laughs> I hope it's no mine I hope it's no the one that I was <laughs> maybe, maybe he got it off the bus <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean obviously during that time obviously black pop bucket hats TFI Friday um, which for time to time I just go and watch all the old episodes you can get them on YouTube Mm-hmm. But obviously that that was TFI Friday was really good for these with the yeah the opening credits and all that. So how did that come about? Was Chris Evans a fan? Uh, well, what it was they were doing a pilot episode. So people who don't know, like a pilot is just like a tester. So they needed a band. Um, so Chris Evans had not done the show before. They were doing like a tester version just to see if it worked. And that one of the people at our record label, the new record label, which is MCA, who were really good people, they're like, I know we, I know you want to do it, but we need a live band to play. Um, it probably will never get aired, but as you're in London tomorrow, would you just do it? And we were like, yeah, fuck it, why not? So we do it. We start playing Riverboat song just as Chris Evans comes in and he was like, stopped in his tracks. He's like, what is, what's this? <laughs> um, and then obviously the TV show then gets passed, like, okay, we can make it. So they start making it the month after, which just happens to be when Riverboat is coming out. It's like, you're coming you're coming on the show. And uh, we used to socialise with them all the time, and then it became the unofficial theme tune for TFI Friday. So so that was it. We just, most bands would have said, well, if it's not co- if it's not going to be broadcast, we won't bother. And we just thought, yeah, okay. We've been asked by someone we trust. We're in town. Fuck it, let's do it. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, do you think, like, throughout your career, being brave enough to take chances like that is kind of, that's what gets you so far in your career? Yeah, totally. It's not, it's not overthink it. And if someone you trust says you should do this and you're not busy, you should do it. You know, as long as it's not some sort of weird thing where, you know, like, let's go and play a fucking Tory party convention or anything like that where you'd rather <laughs> blow your brains out. But, you know, most people have good intentions 
that you know and it's like yeah if you're brave enough just fucking do it believe in yourself you know mm-hmm. and if it's shit you'll never get anywhere anyway but if you're good it's going to help yeah so i mean and as you say all that all that stuff then would help her in the the mosley shows mm. album um when did oasis there was a point where no gallagher asked to join oasis when, when was that was that before or after Moses Shoals? Oh, so it was after Moses Shoals. I'd moved to London, so it would have been after, what's the second album? Morning Glory being made. Gwigsy left, who's a really good mate of mine. They tried out this Scouse kid called Scott McLeod, who jibbed, jibbed the gig after five shows. They really needed a bass player. Um, and it was Noel and Liam and me in a cab somewhere in London, and they were like, join the fucking band. And I was like, okay, but but Liam was super happy, but Noel was like, but you can't be married to anyone else. And well, what that he meant, you can't yeah. play with those anymore and you can't play with Weller. Now, I was like, give us a couple of weeks to think about it. And then I thought about it. I thought, I could sack Weller off for Oasis easily, but I can't leave my band, who have now got to where we are, against all the odds to become yeah. a sideman for some people that I like. So I was like, respectfully declined the invitation to join Oasis. So where would the line-up have been? Would that have been, would Bonehead still have been there at the time? Bonehead was still there, so it had been me, Bonehead, Alan White, who's a lovely yeah. fella, and um, Nolan Lim, yeah. So any regrets then? No, absolutely <laughs> none whatsoever. None whatsoever. And what's um, what was no like after that? Was he still sound with you? Hmm. He was sound, and Liam's always been the same. Liam's always been utterly lovely. I mean, yeah. a, a live wire, or you could call him like a loose cannon, but he's he's always been exactly the same, and you know exactly what you get with him. But you know that no, they're sound. It's like they totally understood. You know, why would I leave my band to join another band if my band had been doing shit? Then I probably would have, let's be honest. Let's not get to be too cozy about it. But <laughs> my band was doing really fucking good. So it's like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, if it went the other way, no would nail left Oasis for him there. So. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so tell us about then about the album coming out. Obviously, mostly shows because mm. uh, did it come out in the summer? Am I right? No, it just seemed everything was dead summery. Yeah. Yeah, so Riverboat came out February 96. Then we had another single, You Got It Bad, probably two months later. Yeah, then it would have been probably around June time, 96. And then Day We Caught the Train came out about four weeks later. And uh, it all just fucking kicked off like mad, which is crazy because we'd made an album on our own with no guidance from anyone, with no record label. Obviously, we then signed the album because... You know, people started to get really interested. Um, but we had complete creative control because we were just doing it ourselves. We were making the album we always wanted to make after the experience of the first one, which we ended up that we never wanted to listen to. It's a fantastic run of singles as well. Like they, they four singles of like every one of them is ten out of ten. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. Um and obviously you get the day tripper cover on the day tripper covers one of the B-sides on one of the singles as well, the one yeah. that, that you played with Oasis, wasn't 
Yeah, yeah. Touching like up here, like touring up here, we're going to go into like the other albums as well. But like looking throughout your career, you've played tons of shows, obviously, but lots of big ones up here, mm. like Stirling Castle, Urban Beach, things like that. And so, do you, what do you find with the Scottish audiences? Oh, I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell you something, a hundred percent for sure. When Riverboat came out. Like we weren't expecting it to be a hit. We'd already had a handful of shows booked in pubs in Scotland. So it was like Twa Tams and blah, blah, blah. So in Perth and Dunfermline and blah, blah, blah. Not even your obvious ones in Glasgow and Edinburgh, but like, you know, slightly out of the way. Uh, you even played Cumbernauld, which is yeah. the, what, the worst um, town in Britain. Fair enough. But these, these local promoters had booked us. Then Riverboat's gone in the charts, top 20. They were phoning our management um, going, they're going to cancel, obviously. We're like, no, we're not. So we had a hit in the charts and we were playing in Perth in a venue that would hold 100 people and there was 500 people there. And I think because we never pulled those shows, but we did them, everyone in Scotland and the Scottish like you know, music journalists were like, fucking hell, this lot are fucking awesome. Um, yeah. And be, because we connected with Scotland early doors, and what you find with the, the Scottish audiences, I'm generalising, but I think it's pretty true that if you fucking mean it and you deliver it, mm. they will love you for it so much. Whereas, it, whereas conversely, if you get on stage and go through the motions, they'll throw bottles at you and boo you off and give you some jip. So it's uh, you know it's it, it is sort of legend in the music industry that glasgow barrowlands is the best gig in the world only if you're any good because if you're yeah. not it's the worst gig in the world so i think that's why we got a connection straight away hence why we ended up doing sterling castle it was a base that was a thank you to scotland really yeah, yeah. i think at that very same team the part where i get the bucket hat i think i get a bootleg cd sterling castle gig as well <laughs> But I, I've noticed, like, Ocean Colour scenes seem to play nearly every December. They come up and play a gig in Scotland. Mm. Even even up till now, they're, they're still doing it with you, um, which is, I, I think it's amazing. It, it's kind of when you know it's Christmas when Ocean Colour scenes play. <laughs> yeah. I look, I, yeah, so do I, because then I get a check in the post because they've just played. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, obviously, like, the... The, the next two albums, like Martin mm-hmm. Already and one from the Modern, um, they, they were relatively quick mm-hmm. after like quick turnaround. So well, like while you're touring most of the shows, then are you writing? Yeah, and we'd written half of Martin Already. We'd written during that that, that the Moses the Moses Shoals period, if you like, when we'd set up the studio with the old Dexy studio. Um, and that's why March and Ready is still a really good album. And then we wrote the second half of it, like on tour in between gigs. But now you've got the pressure and the record label are like, right, we need a new album, we need a new album, like every 12 months. And we, But we spent eight of those 12 months or even nine on tour. Yeah. So bearing in mind, like Moses Scholes, we wrote it over five years. Now all of a sudden it's like, you've got three months to write a follow-up. And you're like, fuck. So that's why One from the Modern's got some really good moments on it. But then it tends to get, literally, we were at the point of, oh, well, that'll do. Because, you know, we we need 14 songs to pick 12 from. It's like when when Moses Shoals, we'd have 72 songs to pick 12 from. 
Mm-hmm. things get pressured what we should have done was because we had a really good record contract where we had creative control we could have just gone well you have to wait three years but yeah. you know, through the sort of because you're successful and you think oh well yeah that because we've made it it must be really good you start putting out stuff that pre-success should have gone yeah it's not quite good enough but it's the same for everybody in whatever creative sphere they're in when they become successful you start to believe your own hype a little bit Mm-hmm. You know, it's just uh, without subconsciously this is as well. You you don't sit down and go, oh my god, we're fucking awesome. Subconsciously, you, the 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 sort of um, safety net of going, oh no, that's not quite good enough, has gone because you've got time presses and and everyone's saying everything you do is great. So yeah, you know, well, we're, that's, we're, that's, we're, it's, it's that loyal fan base as well. They they're yeah. going to get and buy it anyway. Yeah, uh, I mean personally. I don't think there's a bad song in one from the modern either. I mean, yeah, they're still really good. <laughs> and also the, the next, I don't know how many more I did, two, three more records. They're all really good. There's all, like, standout moments on all of them. Uh-huh. You know, Again, I mean, I enjoyed um, Mechanical Wonder. I enjoyed that yeah. album as well. Mm-hmm. But I think by the next one, North Atlantic Drift, I think it was, I kind of... Yeah, you you drafted up my consciousness a bit more. Um, there's different there's different bands coming in by then as well. Yeah. You, a different music scene. Yeah. So while this was going on, obviously you're you're, you're playing it with Weller as well. You to the point where you're recording albums with him then as well. I think we were on Heavy Soul. Was that right? Uh, I didn't. Or Heliocentric and Illumination yes. were on. That's right. Um, so I, I toured Stanley Road. Didn't play on Heliocentric. I'm sorry, Heavy Soul. And then I did the next five albums or well, maybe. I think it's about five. But I was touring for on and off for 12 years with him, yeah. Yeah, you done that covers one as well, Studio. Yeah, I love making that record. That was such a good, that was such fun making that album. Yeah, I, I mean, every Wailer album as well is kind of, it, it takes a different kind of twist, yeah. which... Mm. It, it must be brilliant working with a guy like that as well. How how is it working with Weller? What's his sort of how how does it go? How does is he hands on? Does he let everybody else bring their own back to it? Yeah, both. So he's very hands on in terms of songwriting, but he lets everyone bring their own ideas. Um, but he's also literally the most impatient person in the studio, not with the musicians, but with the people who are um, engineering and producing it. He literally has no patience for someone doing a mix, um, which you can really hear. I'm not slacking him off, but I'm a little bit. You can really hear where he's producing the records on his own, which is like the later stuff, where it doesn't say produced by Paul Weller and it just says produced by Paul Weller because it's just the in-house engineer. And I can I know the picture of like whoever the in-house engineer is just trying to do a mix and Paul's just coming, gone, <laughs> what fucking hell, that'll fucking do. And he looks back to it and you go, oh, just imagine if you spent another couple of days on that; it would have sounded amazing. But yeah, he was a good, uh, musically. He was a uh, uh, as a songwriter and musician. He's a he's an absolute tour de force. Did you um, did you ever tell him that you weren't at the Style Council? Oh, totally, totally. So I told how, did that, that, yeah. how did that go about when you're playing live and you to play? Did you ever have to play a Style Council song? Yeah, I, I remember the, my second day of joining his band. So it was 95. And he uh, he said, oh, yeah, let's just have a quick jam through a song called Man of Great Promise. 
And he played it acoustically so I could look the chords on. I said, oh, was that a new song, Paul? And he's like, are you fucking joking? It's like a fucking absolute classic Star Council song. I was like, oh, I've never heard it. I, I thought the Star Council was shit. And he thought it was the funniest thing ever because most no one else around, they would have gone, sorry, Paul. But um, I think he appreciated the fact that I wasn't a jam fan, never have been, never will be. Uh, wasn't a Star Council fan, even though I appreciate the Star Council a lot more now. Um because it wasn't my thing. I found both bands completely unmysterious and un- unexciting. Far too obvious in what they were doing. It, it's the thing is, you kind of get into every band at, at the once anyway. I mean, like, again, the Style Council were a band that I maybe only got into about four or five years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I was a jam, and then Weller, and then Style Council in that order. Um, and I don't even know if I really liked the jam. I think I was just. Trying to be cool at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, I mean, every Whaler album I, like, I rate really highly. I think he's the stuff that he does is amazing. Um, that brought you into you, you got working with Steve White through Paul Whaler as well, yeah. He's which, one of the nicest people on the planet, Steve White. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a legend, godfather is, to two of my kids as well. Oh, has he? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you, you done you done a wee project with him as well, didn't you? The players. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. So what's what was the scrap behind that? It's more like kind of jazz oriented, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we didn't want to. We didn't particularly want to have a, a either a singer at all, or maybe guest vocalist at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like we wanted to get away from. The Weller world, Ocean Colour Scene world, oh, you know, the Oasis thing, the, the, you know, the big fucking corporate machine. Let's yeah, just, is it something about different? Totally. Yeah, um, yeah a bit a bit funky, a bit jazzy, a bit whatever, whatever we fancied. Um, so we did, yeah, and we did a couple of albums of that, which was really cool. And then that went even more left to centre and became like a jazz Hammond trio called the um, Trio Valore. Uh, which is so funny when you play gigs up north, and and, and you know, the guy would introduce you, and ladies and gentlemen, trio, uh, oh, oh dear, trio, va- oh no, I can't pronounce it. I'll just say it, trio Valcro, <laughs> <laughs> which basically in Italian it just means famous three, and it was kind of a joke. So that's why we called it that. Yeah, yeah, uh, because the the keyboard player wasn't famous, whereas in some situations, me and Steve White are. So it was just it was just basically a piss take. But they were really good fun as well. And we would literally be doing instrumental music, like from Japan to Italy to Scotland, and then some, like, you know, and we'd have great turnouts, and you go and play at the Jazz Cafe in London, and 50 people would turn up. <laughs> you know, so after a while, you're like, oh, well, fuck this. But that was that was good fun. That was really good fun. Yeah. Um, going back, like, obviously, when, when you left Ocean Colour scene, mm-hmm. um, which I don't really want to touch on, like the the ends and that's yeah. But how how was it then playing with Weller? How was it playing like with Steve Craddock once she'd left Ocean Carson? Yeah, it was kind of funny to begin with. I remember the first rehearsal going down to rehearsal with Paul again. I'd already spoken to him, and uh, me and Steve always used to stand next to each other on stage. And well, well as roadies had set the stage up with me and Steve's split as far away as possible with Paul in the middle. And I just immediately saw that and just made a fucking comment about it. I was like, 
well, either we're going to have a punch up when he arrives or we're not. So why don't you just put us back together again? Because it's either going to work or it isn't. And then Steve walks in all moody. And I just went up to him and gave him a hug and said, I didn't leave the bank because I don't like you. Mm. And that's kind of it, really. You know, occasionally we'd, uh, it, was, it was a little bit strained at times because they were trying to sue me for some bullshit, which was just pointless. But anyway, and they didn't sue me in the end because they couldn't. But So there's a bit of that undercurrent in the background. But for me and Steve personally, after the first couple of rehearsals and gigs, it was like, well, it's fine. We're not in another band together. But when we're working with Weller, it's like we're, we're doing this and it's like nothing's really changed, really. Yeah. So it's a bit hard to start with, but then it was fine. It's amazing when you, you look at Weller's band, like the Turner and... Um, mm. There's so many different people I've worked with him now. Um, I think Andy Cross was doing bass for a while. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if he's still there now, but it it does seem to be maybe every four or five albums you'll kind of mix it up and change mm. the, the band. Um, at what point did you start working with Richard Ashcroft? Oh, God, so that would have been, where are we now? Nine years ago, right. 2014, maybe, maybe a little, maybe 10 years ago. I mean, I've known Rich to say hello to for donkey's years, because obviously, you know, you bump into the verb or likewise, vice versa, many different places. Um, and I always really respected Rich and thought he was fucking a total dude. And obviously born in the same shithole and just outside wicked as me. But Rich was starting to get together the, the idea of making a new solo record. And I'd done some stuff with Chris Potter, who produced all Richard's stuff and most of the Verb stuff. And Rich was like, I need a bass player. So Chris said to Rich, well, Damon used to be in Ocean Colors, he used to play with Paul Weller. I've been doing stuff with him. He's fucking magic. And he was like, I'll fucking get him in. Damo, he's fucking great. Um, so we had, literally just had to play together on an A minor chord for about 20 minutes. And uh, Rich is like, oh, that's fucking great. Right, let's go. Um, so then that was it. That's been it up until I left the studio on Tuesday earlier this week. Right. Yeah, so we're working on Well, it's his stuff, but we are working on it together. Um, and we did a gig a week ago. We've got a few more this summer. And blah, blah. Yeah, he's fucking great. Love him. Absolutely love him to bits. He's literally the best singer I have ever played with. And I played with some fucking good ones, you know, from Amy through to Paolo through to fucking, well, people we've just spoken about and the fella from The Who and whatnot. He's the best singer ever. Yeah. I'm going to walk the earth. He's not as good as Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin. <laughs> but, you know, in my sphere of people I've ever come into contact with and played with, uh, yeah, he's an absolute legend. And an uh, utter diamond, one of the nicest people You'll ever yeah, meet. Well, that's just a thing. He, he seems to get portrayed as a bit of a, a, a nutter, but mm-hmm. I mean, he's, I, I don't think he's anything like that. He's, yeah, he's, he's always, he's, he's, his voice is immaculate. Yeah. Um, better than Liam Gallagher, I would say. Oh, there's no there's no competition. Mm. And it, it, it just, once you take yourself back to the times like the, the mid 90s, and there's we're blessed with so many brilliant singers, guitarists, bass yeah. players. Obviously, it's 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 amazing the the kind of standard that we had. Yeah, no, it's it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I there was one week um, 
So the third Oasis album come out the week before. Uh, be uh, be here now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. March and Radio had just come out that week and knocked them off the number one spot. And then Urban Hymns was just about to come out. So the top three when Urban Hymns came out that, that week was Verve, Oasis, Ocean Coliseum. So yeah. Now, now you look at the, the top three of the album charts, you're like, what is this? Yeah. I mean, that would be the perfect time to join the, the Britannia Music Club, mind that. You used to get the five <laughs> albums for 20 quid. Everybody, oh, used right, nice. Everybody used to bump it. You'd get, get the five albums and then just never pay it. And yeah. I, I, I didn't mean like that, right in there with the three albums to start with and another two, chuck in something else. Chuck in <laughs> another couple. So what albums was this with Richard Asker, these people? Is that your first uh, one? Yeah. Yeah, so I've done all so I've done these people, natural rebel, acoustic. The acoustic one with the yeah. sang one as well. That's right, yeah, I've done all of that. Um yeah, no, it's quite fun. I love it, I love working with Rich. Absolutely. So what's happening with that then is is he planning an, another album? Is there another album? The will be the will be. I can't say any more. <laughs> there's a lot and uh, all I will say is there's a lot of songs and they're fucking great. The other question on that actually, so the Urban Hymns album, the like the acoustic one. Pretty sure it said part one. So is uh-huh. there a, is there going to be more of that then, more acoustic? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can't you into that. But no, you can't. No. <laughs> um, obviously, before we touch on your heroes, another thing that I wanted to mention was obviously. When you replied to my email, it said Dr. Manchella. That's right. Um, so how did I ask him about the PhD? I have had um, the guitarist for Glass Vegas on maybe about 20 episodes ago. He's got a PhD as well, so you're not the, you're not the first that yeah. I've had on this podcast. But... Damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's my wife's fault, actually. But... Um... That will make sense in a second. So I had a really bad hand hand injury coming back from um, a trio Valore gig in Japan. I smashed my hands pieces. I couldn't play. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hand specialist said, in six months, we'll know whether you can play the guitar again ever. Because I fucked my tendons up. My tendons were hanging out of my hands. It was hor- horrific. Um Literally a week later, I get a call from a university in Bristol saying, can you come down and do like a, a master class in pop music? And I was like, well, I can't play. And they said, oh, just come and talk about music. So I did, and they're like, fucking hell, you're a mate. Well, they didn't swear, obviously, but what they, they meant it. They said, blimey, I say you're rather marvellous at that. Um, they basically offered me a job in music academia, and I was like, well, I can't play anything, but I can certainly talk about it. Started doing that. Kind of enjoyed it more than because it gave me something to do because I can't sit around doing nothing. And then six months later, the hand specialist said, yeah, you can play again. So I started playing, building my hand back up, which is then when I met, met started doing some sessions for Chris Potter, the producer, who then put me in touch with Rich. Um, so I started doing this music academia, but I was doing more and more of it while starting to play again. But everything I was reading, what these music academics was saying about creativity and pop music or pop music production or songwriting, bullshit. Literally, 
when I say everything, I'd say 99% of it. And it got to the point where my wife said, stop complaining about it. Do a PhD and write your own academic books about pop music and music production, songwriting, blah, blah, blah. I thought, no one will take me on. No university is going to take me on. So I wrote an idea, sent it off to 10 universities. Five came back and said, we want you to do your PhD with us. So I ended up choosing Birmingham. Um, seven years later, I got a PhD. And around about that time, I thought, well, I don't really want to do academia that much anymore because now I'm fully playing again. Now I'm starting to produce records. I'm back to where I used to be. Um, but now I've got doctor in front of my name. Um, but, it, but it's also really it's also really good because I also do a lot of music consultancy for music tech companies. And because I've, I'm a doctor of music, it carries so much weight in mm-hmm. um, you know positioning and the way people respect you. It's like last week I was on... I was down at a thing for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and the British Phonographic Institute talking about AI and music making. And the right. reason why I invited onto the panel is because I'm a doctor of music and, you know, they go on your LinkedIn page and go, oh, I say, they must, he must be really clever. Isn't that interesting that he also makes music as well and not just an academic? So that side of it is really cool, but I literally do fuck all in academia anymore. I just happen to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, touching on that then what what is your opinion of AI because I've seen obviously recent, in recent months there's been a guy uploading all these Oasis songs to YouTube with AI so what's your opinion on that um, I think well you can't stop it you can stand in front of an 18 wheeled truck while it's coming down the motorway at 70 miles an hour or you can get out of the way or you can get on and mm. fucking use it you, um, it depends how, it depends what the AI is doing and depends how you use it. Um, my engagement with it is it's the most incredible tool to fast track the boring shit because it doesn't do the stuff that only a human can do, but it fast tracks all the process involved around it. So you can make wacky decisions to try something out that would normally take eight hours in the studio. You can do it in two minutes just to see if it works. So it's an amazing tool. Mm. Like, you know, the way the analogy I would use, when the wheel was invented, everyone's legs didn't fall off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's, a, it's a, mus- a new musical wheel that has been invented. I seen That's a wee it. boy um, on Glastonbury last night, mm. um, and he was talking about that. Some young boy, I forget his name, but apparently he's worked with Coldplay a few mm. years back. And he's doing this project where he's recording all the, all the crowd's noises for Glastonbury and he's going to make it into some AI musical thing. Mm. I, I couldn't get my head around it. I would need to, need to wait and see like, the finish. Yeah, see what it's like. Result, yeah. But, but I, so it's, I mean, even at something like that at Glastonbury where you would think they would be against stuff like that, they're obviously embracing it. Yeah, and also, you know, I mean, younger generation... But my kids' generations, you know, constantly listen to music on their phones. And if they want to make music, they can do it on the phone. Well, the generation that is younger than them, the upcoming generation, they're going to embrace it. Yeah. Because they're not scared of it. You know, and then what it will do then, it will actually then, at some point, people will go back to music that wasn't had anything to do with AI and look at it in a totally different light. So the artistic struggle and the time to make something that was way before digitalization of anything mm-hmm. will become rarefied even more. And then people will start to 
talk about and listen to stuff that wasn't made with AI. And then that will start to get incorporated into AI. So then the AI will get better at being a tool for musicians to use, to use because at the end of the day, you can just turn it off. Yeah. And you don't have to listen to it. So. Well, that's it. I mean, when people get back to the Beatles and the way they made some of their music and how groundbreaking that was. Yeah, they were cutting edge technology. Yeah. They used whatever they had and they abused it. So, yeah, yeah. I, I totally got that. I'm going to. I'm going to dig into this AI then, in a bit more uh, basis. Before we touch on your heroes, just I wanted one other thing I wanted to talk about was football, because obviously you're a big Evertonian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that your position is goalkeeper. Yeah. Which, obviously, as I said earlier, obviously the last guy I had in the podcast, Andrew Cushion, his episode will be before yourself, is also... That's what he was. He was a goalkeeper before he became um, a musician. So, how were you at football? Did you play at the, what sort of level did you play at? Youth team at Tramway. Right, That's so that's decent. I was fucking great. Weirdly, and I, uh, the reason why is that I've like had two like bizarre <laughs> injuries. One, smashing my hand to pieces so I became an academic and then kind of grew out of that and went back to doing what I'd always normally do. But I smashed my leg terribly. I snapped my leg in half um, in a training game when I was 14 um, for um, Tranmere youth team. I was five foot ten when I was 14. Mm-hmm. I'm still five foot ten. Never got any taller. <laughs> so if I hadn't smashed my leg to pieces, I would I would they would have been like, this kid is so such a good goalkeeper, but he's too small. Yeah. Kind of because I smashed my leg to pieces, that's why I ended up becoming a musician because I couldn't really play football anymore. Mm-hmm. And I never got any taller. So it was that weird sort of happenstance or serendipity where you have this hideous accident which actually set you on the path where I then started. And then I was like, I discovered the bunny men and blah, blah, blah. And so I was a really good goalkeeper, but I'm too short. Yeah. I'm short. I mean, uh, that's actually you would, had you not brought your. Broke your leg, you maybe played another couple of years and they would let you go because you had got let go. Yeah. And I would have then played, you know, like further down and ended up playing for like, you know, whatever, but like not even semi pro, then just amateur. And then, and then I wouldn't have done my music career. And yeah, you know, people's like, oh, you know, you're not that short. And you go, all right, Jordan Pickford is two inches taller than me and he's the shortest goalkeeper in the Premier League. Mm. They're fucking massive. Yeah. They got me. You know, so it's like yeah, I think I think the the idea was well, he's fourteen, he's five foot ten, he's really he's really handy in goal. He's probably going to be six foot plus, great. And ne- never did, never got any taller. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was goal. Yeah, what's um, like obviously like being an Everton fan. How how is it following a football team when you're like when you were doing your music career and you're out playing all these gigs, X amount of gigs a year? Do you get a chance to see your team? At any point? Oh, all the time. I mean, when I say all the time, that's bollocks, because obviously, you know, I might be away doing 200 gigs across the world. Um, and that was like, you, like, football wasn't on the telly, like the, the relentlessness it is now, and you couldn't have dodgy streams where you could watch any game you like before it gets yeah. taken down. But if there was a day off and I could get to Goodison Park, or if there was a day off and I could get to an away game, I'd definitely get one because... 
I could get tickets direct from Everton. And I was sort of good friends with a couple of ex-Everton players who were massive music fans who I met through coming to Ocean Colors, you know, Paul Weller gig. So we became mates and they'd be like, anytime you need a ticket, blah, blah, blah. Or I'd just fucking buy them, you know, if I could. But it's really hard to get them anyway, because you know, there's like literally no point in having a season ticket because you, you're never there. Yeah. Um, you know, I ended up playing in goal at Goodison between um, the Lock Lerman gig and what was the other math? The Nebworth gig Oasis did. So yeah, it was Dave Watson's testimonial. I ended up playing in goal forever and we, we beat Glasgow Rangers 3 0. I had three saves to make. Yeah. Saves to make, made them all. The only reason why we didn't concede is because the defence was really good, but that was that was way scarier than playing Lock Lomond or Nedworth. It was walking walking out of Goodison Park, half full to who are you? Who scared of pop yeah. Oh shit! Um, but it was also hilarious. So yeah, now football's a massive thing for me though. As an Evertonian, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like working in a trampoline factory. Well, I'm a I'm a Celtic fan, and obviously. There's quite a connection between Everton and Celtic. There's quite a lot of um, guys up here in my area. I, I stay in Wisha just outside Glasgow, and there's quite a few of the guys that you've done for a lot of home games at Everton as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, that connection, but you seem to sign so many players for Rangers. Just I know. This connection, like, it's mental, isn't it? Um, obviously, at one point, you had Walter Smith and... Um, Hundreds of players, Alec Cleland. Yeah. Um, lots and lots of Rangers players seem to get in there, but there was still this mad connection with Celtic. It's funny how that worked out like that. Yeah, it is. I think, um, I think, I mean, you can go back to religion and stuff. That's what a lot of people say. You got to get a lot of Rangers fans who, who uh, support the red shite, but it's it's not like it, it is up in Glasgow. I'm not sure where it ultimately comes from. Maybe it's the Catholic thing. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, there's only there's only you know Celtic and Everton. They're the only two important teams in those cities. Yeah. Apologies to any uh, Rangers and no, Red. You can see that you can see that a wee bit louder if you went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the the can you hear my dog wrestling his toy in the back? I'm amazed that my two dogs haven't made a noise. <laughs> um. Aye, pleasure having you on. Last part of the podcast, obviously, we've been called Time for Heroes. I asked for um, four, you pick four heroes to come for dinner. Why uh-huh. they're your heroes and um, also what you would cook them. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to bring a guest who's going to do all the cooking so I don't have to cook anything. Brilliant. Oh, I'm a bit of a foodie. Me, me and my wife love nothing better than going to an amazing restaurant. So instead of buying each other Christmas presents and birthday presents, we always go to a fucking awesome restaurant. There's a guy called Niall Keating. Mm-hmm. I've been to his restaurants twice. One's in, uh, one was down in Somerset. He's got a new one in the sort of Stoke-on-Trent region. Um, literally the best food I've ever eaten outside of Italy. So Niall Keating, he's coming... And he's going to do the cooking. So he's right. going to, for me, himself, <laughs> and the other three guests, he's going to do his 15-course taster menu, which that, that comes with accompanying wine, flight, and everything. So we're all going to have an amazing time, food and booze. And he's, a, he's I've, I've never met him. I've seen him from a distance once. 
I really hope he's a massive music fan and be like, oh, Damon, what a great night. Can I get tickets backstage to see me, Ashcroft? And I'll be like, Niall, we're now bezies. So we've got Niall <laughs> Keaton, the chef. Then I'm going to pick... Who am I going to pick? Someone from football. Um, because Niall's cooking, they don't need to cook. I would naturally go for Duncan Ferguson because he's the only person I've ever met that I've been starstruck to meet. Right. I was introduced to with to Duncan Ferguson by uh, Everton mate of mine called Barry Horn, and and he Barry's like Duncan, this is Damien, and he looked down at me and went, "All right," <laughs> and I literally couldn't get a word out, and then he walked off. But I'm going to bring in my real footballing hero, which is Diego Armando Maradona. Brilliant. The great, not only because his stories would be incredible. But he is the greatest footballer to ever walk the earth. And what he did for ne- the Naples region and the football team winning the Scudetto twice is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and the, there's, there's a saying in, in Naples that it's about Maradona with the ball at his feet, he could dance between the raindrops. And if I translate that, give us a second, I'll translate it into Italian. Okay, con una palla ai piedi, poteva danzare tra le gocce di pioggia. So with his feet, he could dance between the raindrops. And he was a magician, an artist. And obviously with Maradona, the most amazing thing is it's the hand of God thing you throw in, which all the fucking English hate, and it's fucking hilarious. And he's just a genius. So Maradona... So we have the, the Nile Keaton, the chef. We'd have Maradona. Pick someone for music. I'm going to go with Chuck D from Public Enemy. Brilliant. Um, because I'm weirdly got really, really, really into rap music via the Bunny Men and Velvet Underground. I don't know how I ended up into their first rap music I ever really listened to was the first Public Enemy album, the old mm-hmm. one show. And I'm like, this guy is a genius. And then I met him donkeys years later. Uh, doing the same festival where a public enemy were playing in Switzerland. I'm there with a suit on. We've just played. I'm covered in sweat. White guy with a suit on. Public enemy's dressing room is next to ours. Massive dudes with security. And I'm like, fuck it, I'm going in. Knocked on the door. They've told me to fuck off. Chuck D opens the door. And he went, hey, man. And I went, oh, hi, I'm David. I've just played with Paul Welly. He said, yeah, I saw you play, man. That's cool. That's cool shit, man. Gave me a fist pump. I was like, fuck, you're Chuck D. So he is coming. He's bringing the music stories. He's bringing the politics. He's bringing the revolution. And then my all-time hero of everything ever, apart from my dad, is, might surprise you, Napoleon. Brilliant again. These are, nobody's picked these these guests before, so it's breaking new ground with us. Yeah, and Napoleon obviously he's a very, obviously a very interesting character because he's like you know this incredible general, but also a lot of hang-ups. But a lot yeah. of things that people don't know. He invented the ambulance. He invented the metric system. He his um, scientists found the Rosetta Stone, which is the only reason why we can read Egyptian hieroglyphs. And he also wrote this thing called uh, Le Code de Napoleon when he became emperor, which is the basis of all modern political systems in the fact that it's 
totally got rid of the last remnants of royalist feudal shit where you would have local um, magistrates and then you pay, you have like your council tax and then you pay your bigger taxes, but then you'd be able to vote for your local representative, your main representative, blah, blah, blah. Right. Actually, all the political systems we know, and he included proportional representation in his code of Napoleon. So it's fascinating. I know it's fascinating, isn't it? And also he was a badass at fucking organizing armies and kicking people's asses. So you picked the four people, obviously you, you mentioned Duncan Ferguson. So if I if I allowed you to have Duncan Ferguson, I'll I'll allow you to have Duncan Ferguson there as well. Um, okay. how how do you think that would go with Duncan Ferguson and Napoleon? Like, well, I'm definitely the hardest one there. I'm definitely if, if Duncan could come, so he's the fifth guest. I'm definitely sitting Duncan Ferguson in between Napoleon and Maradona because they're both tiny, so it would be <laughs> fucking hilarious. I think Duncan Ferguson would either really appreciate Napoleon butting in and giving his opinion the whole time, mm-hmm. or he'd just fucking headbutt him. Yeah. I, I'd go for the latter, probably. I'd go for I the latter. Eh, I mean, like Duncan Ferguson. A brilliant player, a brilliant talent, and he was kind of obviously at Dundee United. He was tied into this massive contract, didn't he? Yeah. Um, obviously, when he went to Rangers and he didn't he the headbutt thing and all that, but he just he seemed to find a place at Everton, didn't he? Oh, utter legend. When, um, you know, I saw him play so many times, but when oh, oh bumfuck board sold him to Newcastle and then he came back I was at his first game back in fact I took Steve White to it because it was Everton Charlton and Steve's a massive Charlton fan mm-hmm. and it, we were drawing one all and second half kicks off and the entire Goodison Park was seeing Duncan Warner and we all just stand up and sing Duncan Duncan Ferguson the Duncan Ferguson song and then he comes on and bangs in too and this euphoria for this fella from Dundee. Yeah. It's kind of weird he became a scouser. Yeah. This connection was incredible. What is, it, what is he doing now? Is he, is he on the coaching staff for now? He was, but he's left. He left at the beginning of the season. He is the manager for Forest Green Rovers. Well, is he? The most eco friendly team in the world. Okay, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. Um, so, exactly. Is, is that his first management job? Obviously, he's been a bit reusing that. He's yeah, that's his first. In the coaching staff at Newcastle at some point. Yeah, that's his first where he's completely in charge. Yeah. Well, I'd, I don't know if I'd like to be a player under his control. And scary, wouldn't it? Uh, imagine my place in a pass with Duncan on the sidelines. But my mate, my mate um, Barry Horney's played for Everton. Used, when Duncan signed for Everton, he was given the, the, the job to look after Duncan. And he was saying, and he said, for all his sort of public persona that he's a hard man, and he is a hard man, and he's drinking and all that, he said, he's actually a sweetheart. He's a right softy. Once he gets yeah. to know it, he's a lovely softy. Yeah, yeah I, I mean... I suppose, I I suppose it's the getting to know him bit. Yeah, I think that's Scottish folk are like that, but um, don't break into his house, obviously. Oh, my God. I don't do it twice. He got he got done twice, and he put he put he put all all the robbers in in hospital. But yeah, yeah. funny. Anyway, Damon, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Um, we've touched on some good subjects, and it's been a it's been a a fantastic Sunday evening speaking to you. 
Um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We'll end it here. Magic. Nice one. Cool. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly enjoy.